This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Angela Davis, an autobiography. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, and now featuring a new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a powerful account of Davis's early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from her childhood in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century, from her political activity in a New York high school to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soldad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA to the FBI's list of 10 most wanted fugitives. Angela Davis an autobiography, out now from Haymarket Books. Find it at haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's been two weeks since Russia shocked the world including the host of this podcast, by launching a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Today, I'm discussing the war, its origins, how it's being experienced by Ukrainians, Russians, Europeans, and Americans, and its geopolitical and global economic ramifications, particularly sanctions. My guests are Sophie Pinkham and Nick Mulder. There are a few places where you can get this sort of in-depth and deeply informed analysis pumped directly into your earbuds. And there is just one and only one principal reason that this is possible in economic terms. And that's because listeners just like you contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. We do make some money from advertising, but most of our funding comes from listener contributions. If you listening to this right now are a regular listener and you really appreciate what we do at The Dig, please take a quick moment to make a modest contribution to support The Dig. Many of you can certainly afford $5 a month. If that is you, please do contribute. A contribution of any amount at all also gets you our weekly newsletter emailed to your inbox. And a contribution of $10 a month or more means that we mail you a book or books, a dig tote bag, or a dig coffee mug. Please do contribute what you can. It really does mean a lot and make this all possible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. That link is right there in the show notes. You can click on it right now and donate. Okay, here's Sophie Pinkham and Nick Mulder. Sophie Pinkham is the author of Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine. She has written about Russian and Ukrainian culture and politics for the New York Review of Books, The New Republic, The New Left Review, and many other publications. Nick Mulder is professor of modern European history at Cornell University. 
He writes about international politics and economics for a variety of magazines and newspapers, and is the author of the new book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Sophie Pinkham and Nick Mulder, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for inviting us. Sophie, one reason that I was erroneously way too skeptical that Russia would mount a full-scale invasion is because Ukrainians themselves seemed so very skeptical. There were these incredulous American headlines that portrayed the citizens of Kiev as conducting themselves with an unreal sort of normalcy and calm. And even in the days leading up to the invasion, Zelensky insisted to the international community that talk of war only made its prospect more likely. Why did so many Ukrainians believe that this wouldn't happen? That's an interesting question. I would add also that a lot of Russians didn't think it would happen either, with some exceptions. But from the Ukrainian side, I think there were probably several things going on. Ukrainians have been through so much already that I think that they've become a little bit kind of inured to a constant sense of danger. I don't know, are are not at all, most or many Ukrainians, and there were some, certainly some Ukrainians who were expecting it and who were preparing for it. Um, I was just reading an interesting article by Tim Judah in the uh, New York Review of Books that was filed, I think, six hours before uh, before Russia invaded Ukraine, but he was writing about how in Odessa they were having, you know, target practice and preparing for the possibility of invasion. So some people expected it, but a lot of people didn't. I often think of a close friend of mine in Kiev whose mother, whatever happens, she always says it's not as bad as Chernobyl and kind of refuses to react, which is perhaps emblematic of a certain um, a certain mentality when you've been through so much you are much less inclined to panic. And then I think I think that a lot of people in Ukraine had reached a similar conclusion to a lot of Russia specialists, foreign specialists, also people within Russia who evaluated the situation and felt that it would simply be so irrational and so insane almost for Putin to launch a full-scale invasion that they couldn't believe it. I think a lot of people believed that, you know, he might do some cyber attacks, meddle, reignite the conflict in Donbass, and so on and so forth. But the thought of him invading Kiev up until he did it seemed unimaginable to most people. Well, I don't really have any special insight, like Sophie, into the Ukrainians, other than our contact with friends in in Kiev and also in Moscow and lots of journalists that we were in touch with there, who had a sort of sense of foreboding that things were definitely not going in the right direction in Russia already for the last few uh, years and, and particularly last few months. But that still doesn't really add up to any kind of r- realistic expectation that something as really frankly crazy as this could happen. It's also something that I think the first few days after it happened, we were both really asking ourselves, how could we have misjudged this? Were we? How were we lulled into this sense that this was impossible? And yeah, I think that, that it's just something that, uh, particularly when there's been this buildup 
uh, for over so many months, extremely highly documented. There's a very conscious effort on the part of Western governments who have intelligence about that military buildup to try and expose it to the public, which is clearly part of making it more difficult for Putin to com commit that aggression. And then I think some, you know, residual just skepticism about the ability of technical experts, uh, military and intelligence experts who clearly can, could see these things, but the sense that even though they have a lot of technical skill, they were maybe missing something about the politics, that these are people who know a lot about military equipment, but they're not necessarily people who have special insight into the you know, minutiae and the subtleties of Russo-Ukrainian relations. And that's, I think, you know, the difficult thing is to try and come up with the sort of analysis where you can put all of those things together. And that, I think, was kind of, it was, in retrospect, staring us in the face, but the political decision to do it simply didn't really make sense to us. And I think that that's because we were starting from a point of view of looking at it politically rather than militarily or technically. That made it difficult for us, I think, to wrap our heads around it. Yeah, definitely. And 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 like I said, a lot of Russian independent journalists, for example, didn't think it was going to happen. They thought it was a bluff. It didn't make sense. And then it seems now that Putin was keeping his plan a secret from almost everyone. And there was no preparation or no sort of advance warning of what was going to happen, even it seems in relatively high levels of the military, certainly in the different government structures, which were taken completely unaware and extremely shocked. But that meant that, you know, journalists in Russia who had sources in those places kind of were skeptical that there could be an invasion because how could you launch a full-on war without at least telling a few people? But it seems to have been kept under wraps to an almost astonishing degree with the caveat that, as Nick said, the troops were kind of staring us in the face and the military intelligence was staring us in the face. The other unanswered question for me is, is Zelensky's behavior right before the invasion, which was another reason that I, for example, thought that it couldn't be be true that the U.S. had such definitive intelligence because if they had such definitive intelligence, surely they would have shared that with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and he would have responded differently. Um, and I, I still don't know whether he did have access to that intelligence and for some reason chose to sort of keep a stiff upper lip and hope until the end that that Russia wouldn't go through with the attack or whether something was withheld from him. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which of those it is. I don't know if there are any Ukrainian investigative journalists who have gotten to the bottom of that yet. Given the asymmetry in Ukrainian and Russian military capabilities, this war has often been compared to another set of 21st century invasions, ones that our country did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yet there's obviously a different texture to this conflict. The people of Iraq and Afghanistan led lives that were in many respects pretty different from ours in the United States and were portrayed, of course, as extremely different, as people just profoundly other to Americans. This, by contrast, is a supremely intimate war. That doesn't mean there's any sort of ethical difference. Both sorts of wars are profoundly immoral, but it does mean that the war is being experienced in a certain way by both Ukrainians and Russians. Many have, have relatives on the other side of the border, and there are really deep cultural and historical ties. What what does that all mean for how Ukrainians and Russians are understanding what's happening right now? 
Well, I think it certainly obviously fuels the overwhelming outrage and shame that is being felt by the segment of Russians who are fully aware of what's going on and who haven't been either deceived or blinded or <laughs> hypnotized by the immense amount of propaganda that they are exposed to and by at this point kind of final strangulation of any independent media in Russia. It's one thing to if you don't, you know, if you don't have family or friends in Afghanistan to be outraged about the U.S. war in Afghanistan, no matter how disgusted you are by it. If you don't have ties in that region, it, it's it's geographically far away. It's, it feels culturally far away, probably and this is a completely different thing. You know, this is this is your cousins being bombed, your former coworker being bombed. There's so much movement back and forth between Russia and Ukraine, even post-2014. It declined, but there's still loads of movement as well as family ties. And then there's just the physical proximity is unbelievable. Bombs, bombs are dropped in Afghanistan. You read about it in the newspaper. You can't see it from across the border. I mean, I was talking to someone in Belgorod, which is the town, uh, the city on the border just across from Kharkiv. So it's Belgorod is in Russia. That's where a lot of the troop troops were gathering and so on. And you can see the explosions from there. How you interpret them as a Russian person depends on which which propaganda you have succumbed to or, you know, whether you still have open communication with friends in Ukraine. So it varies, right? But the fact remains that you you see the explosions. It's an absolutely different experience of a war. And I think that goes back to the question of why didn't people expect this, right? It's much easier to sell your population on an unjust and pointless war that is prosecuted very far away, right? With people who have limited ties to the people who you're asking to fight the war, but such an intimate war is, is a much harder sell and is much more likely to provoke intense outrage and anger. Although the flip side of that is that, you know, there are plenty of Russians, as I understand it, who have believed the propaganda, who have become convinced that Ukraine is a Nazi country and it has to be denazified by the noble Russian army. And to be deceived by that when it's the neighboring country, when odds are you could probably find a Ukrainian friend of a friend at most to email about it, you know, or call on the phone to discuss it. And they would tell you this is a horrifying war. It's a monstrous invasion. Everything Putin is saying is a lie. And you still believe in the Russian TV propaganda. That's that's a pretty unbelievable leap. And I think that that speaks also to the overwhelming rage that a lot of Ukrainians are feeling. And that's also a, an, a historical rage, of course. But I think it also has to do with the intimate feeling of this violence. Yeah, and uh, I think one thing about the experience that has stood out to me, but that's also as a European person, is the way in which the massive refugee crisis caused by this war has been perceived very differently and has led to a totally different reaction from almost all countries in the European Union compared to previous refugee movements. And it's really quite striking. If you go back only a few months to October, November 2021, so this is less than half a year ago, you'll remember there was that big standoff at the Polish-Belarusian border. 
and the, also the border between Belarus, uh, Belarus and Lithuania. And at that point, it was Lukashenko, the, the dictator of Belarus, who had moved uh, a large number of refugees, Kurds, Iraqis, other uh, Afghan, also Middle Eastern refugees, and given them cheap flights and was essentially using them uh, in, in various ways to sort of test the eastern border of the European Union. And it was very clear that the same prejudice of many Europeans towards Middle Eastern immigrants that was already on display in the aftermath of the Syrian civil war in 2015, when there were one million refugees that entered Europe, that that was coming back. And it was really striking in last fall how quickly uh, the Polish government, which is itself in the in the process of a major cleansing of its own civil society from liberal elements in a, in a very scary way, uh, bans on abortion right, incredible curtailments of, of women's rights, and uh, a really pretty nasty politicization of the judiciary and ultra-conservative turn in, in, in politics and in culture, that they, uh, who for many months had been cast by most you know, well-thinking people in Europe as the biggest threat to the rule of law in Europe, were now in one or two weeks' time, all of a sudden, uh, portrayed as the eastern rampart, rampart against dangerous refugees who were being weaponized by a uh, Belarusian dictator. So that was going on just for uh, five months ago. And to see now that in the last two weeks, there have been, I think, two million Ukrainians who have entered the EU. So the, the numbers and the speed at which this exodus has happened are astonishing. And ra- how quickly not only they've been accommodated across multiple countries, but how many people in Western Europe are, you know, in, organizing mutual aid groups, doing enormous amounts of fundraising, hiring vans to drive medical equipment to the border of Poland and Belarus with Ukraine. It's just an incredible world of difference. And I think it says something also about the, the proximity that Europeans feel towards Ukraine, the fact that since 2014, Ukrainians have very much cast their desires for a normal, stable life uh, by uh, wrapping themselves in the European flag, uh, which is also uh, blue and yellow, uh, like the Ukrainian one. Uh, so th- that, to me, has really stood out uh, in, in terms of how Europe deals with, with migrants. And that obviously doesn't at all mean, right, that the Ukrainians shouldn't receive the kind of care and refuge that they are getting, which is uh, really important and great. But it, it does, I, c- I can imagine that it does feel kind of painful to people from the Middle East and uh, other Europeans who've had to really, over the last decade, fight and, and struggle t- tremendously to gain their right to acceptance in, in the European Union. Mm-hmm. It's interesting also to think back to when Russia was bombing Syria and there was this whole rhetoric about Putin is weaponizing refugees. He's bombing Syria in order to send refugees to Europe to destabilize Europe, which that was language that I found extremely disturbing at the time. But interesting that that hasn't been reactivated in any way uh, with the Ukrainian refugee crisis. I'm, of course, glad that it hasn't been reactivated. But it, again, shows very different perceptions of specifically Russian bombing campaigns in different countries that lead to an infl- a huge influx of refugees into Europe. Yeah, and during that whole recent Polish-Belarusian border crisis around refugees, there was all this reporting around Lukashenko's weaponization of refugees against Poland and the EU, and not very much recognition of the fact that Lukashenko could only weaponize refugees if Poland and Europe were so predisposed to see refugees as weapons and threats 
in the first place. Absolutely. And when you compare the numbers of refugees in the Ukrainian Ukrainian exodus now and the Polish border crisis, I mean, the, the Belarusian refugee situation that happened, the the numbers are not even possible to compare. I mean, the, the, the numbers with the Belarusian and Polish case were minuscule compared to what's happening now, but the response is absolutely different. Although I think it's also... One thing that especially some Ukrainian scholars that I know and people who are more well-versed in Eastern European history and politics have been discussing is the definition of whiteness now, right? Which is pretty capacious in this instance. But one does wonder the open-hearted welcome for Ukrainians will continue indefinitely or whether there will be a moment if people end up staying for a long time, if people end up settling long term in Europe, especially if they, you know, get some kind of, you know, EU, EU working permits and so on, whether people's, uh, people will feel less fervent in a few months and start remembering, for example, all the resentment of Polish workers after Poland joined the EU, you know, Mm -hmm. this resentment of sort of Polish, I don't know, Polish plumbers and so on and so forth that help fuel Brexit, among other things, and whether people will kind of relapse um, to a certain resentment of Slavs, which of course has a long history as well. The specter of the Polish plumber is a reminder that these racial and civilizational categories are not fixed in place. Many of us on the American left condemn Russia's invasion, obviously, while also recognizing the role that post-Cold War geopolitics, particularly NATO expansion, played in laying the groundwork for this present moment. But the political space here in the U.S. for making this sort of argument has become distressingly constrained. Is it fair to say that for most Ukrainians, this sort of context is simply just not discussable at all? I mean, that's obviously would be far more understandable for them than it is for Americans who are not suffering from this war and yet are energetically stigmatizing all left-wing critiques? Well, I would say at this point, all the Ukrainians, almost all the Ukrainians I know and speak to and am aware of would probably say, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but would probably say that that ship has sailed. The time for discussing the politics of NATO expansion are long gone. Russia has attacked, and that's sort of all that matters at this point. So the people I know have absolutely no patience for that discussion. For me, it's been frustrating, first of all, to see the extreme polarization of this discussion and the unwillingness to accept any kind of middle ground. I don't see why it's so hard for people to accept that, especially the 2008 statements by George Bush about bringing Georgia and Ukraine into NATO, that those, they made Russia angry. It's not surprising that they made Russia angry. Any country in that schema of of power in that scenario would probably have been made angry by that statement. It's not surprising. It's not an out there leftist conspiracy theory to say that. It's sort of obvious. And yet at the same time, obviously that in no way justifies Putin's behavior. And it also doesn't fully explain Putin's behavior, right? Because people knew that even though Bush had talked about Ukraine joining NATO and it was kind of in the air, that 
was not really going to accept Ukraine, right? Just as the EU was not going to accept Ukraine. So to a significant extent, it was symbolic. And of course, as many Ukrainians uh, have been pointing out recently and others as well, no one has done more to make Ukrainian public opinion pro-NATO than Putin, right? It was vastly, vastly lower in, say, 2011 than it is now when the overwhelming majority, according to the the latest poll that I saw, the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians want to join NATO for extremely obvious reasons. Obviously, Putin was ready to invade their country and try to destroy it, basically, and destroy the whole thing. So, of course, they wanted to join NATO. For me, the most frustrating part of the story is the way that NATO and especially the U.S., from from the time of George Bush's statement, which many high officials at the time in the U.S. opposed, right? They knew it was provocatory and they tried to stop him from uh, from saying it or were upset that he said it. You can read uh, the geographer Gerard Toll has a good book about this that gives the whole story in, in, in a very illuminating detail. It's called uh, Russia's Near Abroad, I, I believe. But they they sort of put put forth the idea that Ukraine could join NATO, which predictably enraged Russia, but they didn't let Ukraine join NATO. And so my feeling has always been, and I feel this way also about the U.S. putting weapons or giving weapons to Ukraine, the U.S. you know engaging in activities that are clearly intended to strengthen Ukraine's military, but not that much, right, is that you should you should make the choice, either do it or don't do it. But this middle ground, I think, was the most dangerous place for Ukraine to be. And I think that to some extent, the events that we've seen over the last two weeks have borne out that idea, right? If you're going to invite Ukraine to join NATO, you should let them join NATO promptly. (laughs) You know, you have to go all the way so that they can have the protection of NATO at least. But this idea of sort of holding out that opportunity to NATO for Ideas that were really about, I think, the U.S. ideology, about George Bush's kind of evangelical approach to all the nations of the world, regardless of geography and so forth. It was in the U.S.'s best interest and it was in Ukraine's worst interest. So either invite them and make them part of NATO so they're protected or don't invite them and then Russia will not be enraged. And I'm not even going to say that that would have stopped Russia from invading NATO because I think that the decision to invade Ukraine is not only so wrong, but so irrational that it's not clear to me that even if the U.S. had had signed a paper or whatever saying Ukraine can never, ever be in NATO, that, that Putin wouldn't have invaded. But all the same, I think it would have been more fair to Ukraine and more rational from a geopolitical standpoint to just pick one pick one side early on rather than keeping them in this in this incredibly dangerous limbo. Yeah, they got they got led down the primrose path and so ended up with the worst of both worlds with all the problems of being associated with NATO vis-a-vis Russia and none of the protections. But as as Adam Tews wrote in a in a recent essay about the shortcomings of of realism, which I found really interesting because I feel like, I don't know, after the collapse of the third worldist moment that the left doesn't have much aside from realism. It feels like we're kind of stuck between realism and neoconservatism. But the essay was interesting because it points out that where realism air, it argues that where realism airs is when it purports to explain the entirety of something and then normalize that within the context of great power contests. But that said, it is clear that this history matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then one other thing that, uh, again, from a European point of view, and particularly the, the role of EU membership, uh, one thing that I've found very interesting about this is that you can see a similar kind of ambiguity f from Europeans towards Ukraine about EU membership. And of course, EU membership is not in the same way probably perceived as a geopolitical threat by Russia, although there are people who do argue that, who actually say that the real ideological transformation of a society in a Western way comes when they have to submit themselves to all of these communal laws and prescriptions of European Union membership. And that's what's tr what truly makes a society Western and no longer post-Soviet in some way. The, it, it is definitely true that joining the EU entails a much more thoroughgoing social transformation than joining NATO, which is essentially just about tying your, your military command structure to a wider alliance and, uh, and undertaking treaty obligations. But in the EU too, I think that there was probably a, a refusal and an, a lack of interest in thinking about this in realist terms, but also even just in terms of other people's perceptions and, and Russian perceptions. And the EU has long, I think, seen its near abroad and the, the Balkans and the Eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea region as a zone where it could project its soft power and dangle the prospect of association agreements without having, again, to commit. And the fact that uh, actually, interestingly, you know, of course, in practice, the European Union, I think, very clearly has a certain civilizational and even ethnic set of undertones when it comes to immigration policy. But on paper, there is no geographical definition in the European treaties of what constitutes Europe. And this also, if you ask European diplomats, they will always trumpet this as a massive strength. They say, ever since 1957, the Treaty of Rome that created the European economic community, we've never geographically defined Europe. And that's a great source of power because it means any country that, that, that sort of is adjacent to our core agglomeration of member states can think of itself as a potential member. So you, you again get in that space of indeterminacy and it, it raises hopes among Ukrainians that they can join. And uh, interestingly, you know, Morocco, for example, asked and, and tried to join the EU in 1986, and then it was turned down. So the EU does sometimes say no to these things. But with Ukraine, they did try and extend them an association agreement. And now, even at the height of this crisis, it's really striking to me that they are still pushing through just today in the FT. They're really pushing hard for a, a fast track EU membership, which in the, in the height of this crisis doesn't really give you any of the security or, or geopolitical cover of NATO membership. But it's still, I think... Uh, maybe represents a sort of desire to capitalize on this global attention for their plight, that now they finally have a, a, an opening where they can really lock in this new Western identity and they want to go for it. But again, I think you can really say that Europeans and European leaders in Western Europe were happy to uh, dangle the soft power, but again, not really uh, undertake the burdens and also invest the money of bringing Ukraine in because they've also really underinvested in Ukraine over the last decade. And this was happening um, in 2013-2014 with Maidan also, to some extent. There was the the famous, there were the famous interventions of, um, of sort of various EU representatives and representatives of the U.S. who were very excited to come to the Maidan protests and wave flags and declare their solidarity and so forth. But how much solidarity was there in the end? Not enough to stop Russia from annexing Crimea or to stop them from 
fomenting this war in Donbass that continues to the present and now has spread into a war across the country. Um, yeah, and it, it was it was partly about optics. I think I, I wrote about that at the at the time with Maidan that the EU felt that these protests, which were sometimes called actually Euro Maidan, that they confirmed the value of the EU project at a time when it was starting to feel really shaky after the Greek crisis and and so on. But the EU feeling good was not not necessarily a good justification for these sort of interventions that were provocative to Russia, but without giving Ukraine a level of protection or support that would be tr- really transformational. Given that these, these long-standing divisions among Ukrainians oriented toward Europe and NATO, others oriented towards Russia, many others were oriented more towards just neutrality, given that those long-standing divisions have recently, to such a great extent, just plain evaporated, is this war in a way constructing or reconstructing Ukrainian national identity in real time? And if so, what sort of national identity is it that's that's being made? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I would say that Ukrainian national identity has probably changed since... Maidan, and especially since Russia's aggression starting in 2014, I think that that, I know that that has caused a huge uptick in a sense of nationalism, a sense of patriotism, a sense of animosity towards Russia, preference for speaking Ukrainian over Russian for political reasons, and has built up. I think this is one of the things that Putin probably didn't understand when he made this unbelievable plan. It's it's built up a level of national feeling that is contributing to the unbelievable solidarity and organization and commitment to fighting to the bitter end that we're seeing now in the resistance to the Russian invasion. But obviously, this is a level of militarization that was not seen in 2014. And it's always a question how that will transform a country. Of course, Ukraine has already had some issues, you could say, with these far-right militias that were formed in 2014 in response to the Russian invasion, and that included some very unsavory elements, which I'm sure people have heard about. That was a very small faction of the Ukrainian response to the Russian invasion, but even a small faction that is militarized and heavily armed can cause political problems, right? And now I haven't heard anything about those far-right elements so far in the resistance, but I think that unfortunately the sudden extreme militarization of a country can often have very dangerous knock-on effects, especially when it is a place, um, and I feel I feel almost guilty even <laughs> criticizing anything about Ukraine at this moment of crisis, but Ukraine is, after all, an extremely corrupt country. And there have been these popular movements that were aimed at rooting out corruption, and they have not met with a lot of success. And it's a very poor country as well. It has all sorts of economic problems. And when you inject a very, very large number of weapons 
into that kind of situation and you have this extreme militarization, I do worry about what will happen down the road. Um, of course, the Russian invasion is the is the primary threat right now. But I wonder what will happen even if the Russian, even once the Russian invasion, I hope, ends. And if some kind of peace is brokered, there's still going to be so many guns on the street. And there are already some problems with the civilian defenders, right? In Kiev, they just distributed guns to apparently anyone who asked for one on the second day of the invasion. And so now they have just all of these kind of random people with weapons. There have been friendly fire incidents. People get confused. I was reading an article by Sean Walker in The Guardian where he told a story about this guy from Dagestan who joined the Territorial Defense Force in Kiev. But this guy looks like he's from the Caucasus, right? And he apparently can no longer leave his apartment without being escorted by the other guys from the Territorial Defense Force because he's at risk of being shot as a Chechen, right? Because there are Chechen, there are famously Chechen forces who have come to help with the Russian invasion. And so one does wonder if this is going to end up with a sort of Balkan scenario. I have a friend from high school who is from Kosovo, and he has this story about, it's a childhood memory after the wars of the 90s of when they finally organized a weapons amnesty. And even his family, which was not involved in fighting, but people had just accumulated a lot of weapons for self-defense. And he has this memory of going with sort of a shopping cart of weapons with his with his mom on the bus to drop them off at the amnesty point. And I certainly hope that it doesn't get to that point in Ukraine, but it, I think it's something to, to consider and possibly to be concerned about down the line. Yeah, uh, well, the other thing, and I, I'm happy that Sophie mentioned actually Yugoslavia because, you know, this is a this is a huge war and I do think the Yugoslav wars and the wars in Chechnya are important precedents that people should keep in mind. There's a discourse right now among a certain group of Western liberals that this is a major geopolitical conflict, the likes of which have not been seen in seven years, that it's World War II. And uh, that that's really the, the, the last time that we saw fighting on this scale. And understandably, you know, Russia is involved. So in that sense, it's it's you can see why people make that claim. But there is a real erasure, I think, going on of the wars in both Yugoslavia and Chechnya, both of which killed more than 100,000 people over the course of several years. Now, this war is already killing right uh, thousands of people too. Uh, but, but those wars uh, were uh, in the 90s and early 2000s still extremely significant on that scale. And you saw some of the dynamics there, which... I also worry about one could see as this war in Ukraine, if it drags on, then I worry that we could see those developing as well. One of the big misconceptions, I think, is to to assume that this incredible unity, very mediatized among Ukrainians, will persist. There are genuine political differences, right, as you already alluded to, Dan. So war doesn't erase politics, uh, and particularly when everyone gets weapons, you actually have new means with which to pursue politics. So over time, I think, as the decisions that the Ukrainian resistance against Russian aggression faces become more acute, you'll start to see 
it's definitely possible to, to, to think of certain groups making local deals in particularly these cities that are now encircled in the east and north and, and, and south of the country that in order to save local people there, they'll quite likely strike some sort of deal if that's possible with the invader to allow food through, perhaps even sell and engage in trade with them. Those sorts of dynamics were very common in Yugoslavia in the 1990s over the course of several years, where you had certain groups, Croats and, 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 and Bosnians, for example, who would trade with Serbs uh, that their own uh, ethnic uh, brothers and sisters in other areas were fighting. So the local politics of this, uh, particularly because Ukraine is a very large country, are likely, I think, to get much more complex over time. It's going to really chafe against this narrative of national unity. And it's going to also lead to problems probably for the Ukrainian political cause uh, because it, it mean, means that it becomes much more difficult over time, I think, also to bring everyone who is fighting under the Ukrainian flag towards agreeing to a ceasefire or some sort of compromise, negotiated settlements that will end this war, if that is even on the cards. Uh, but so, yeah, I think that the, the political, the danger of political division and fractions over time, that is really supercharged by the, the flood of weapons and the size of the country. The fact that you start to see already communication and holding this all together, Zelensky being very much a compromised figure. Those are sorts of dynamics that based on Yugoslavia and Chechnya, uh, we can we can expect probably. This this widespread sense of deeply felt solidarity with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people is on one level moving and it's happening for obvious reasons. People are suffering brutality at the hands of invading an invading Russian army. So it's not hard to see which side is is the good side, which side is the bad one. But on the other hand, I've encountered people I know who know nothing about politics, who suddenly feel so moved and have such strong feelings right now. And I don't want to any in any way disparage people for feeling solidarity with Ukrainians. I wish people felt a more universal sense of solidarity with people who suffer but and who are oppressed. But this global sentiment must be difficult to watch from Yemen or Palestine. What do you make of this kind of social media mediated mass solidarity that we're seeing? It's it's humane and nice, but also kind of weird and militaristic. Is it is it just that Ukrainians are white or is it more that Russia is the enemy? What what makes this war so relatable and resonant to to Americans? Well, I think it's partly that Americans are so well prepared to see Russia as their enemy, which is not to say that what Russia is doing is not monstrous. It's absolutely monstrous. But Americans, for example, have not been trained to despise Saudi Arabia, for example, who, you know, that's another country that you could find quite a lot to criticize in, uh, especially if you are in Yemen. But Americans have been trained, especially after, especially liberal Americans, especially after the Trump-Russiagate years, to almost obsessively hate Russia and to see Putin in particular as this global supervillain. Um, so they're very prepared to be on the side of whoever is not Putin. But that said, and I think the Syrian case demonstrates this as well, it's a lot easier when it's Europeans, it's people who are read as, as white, even though they would have been read as racially other by Hitler, for example. 
So there's that. Then there's the fact that there's just the geography of it, right? Especially for Europeans, the fact that it's so close by, it's in Europe, it doesn't feel safely far away in the way that wars in the Middle East do, although they aren't that far away, but but still. Um, and, and there's the symbolism also of war in Europe and war involving Russia and another European country, which obviously is easy to link to the Second World War, which remains the kind of totemic war. And then also, I think it does have to do with not this, not so much the the social media, not so much the spontaneous social media element, but the media media element. I mean, it's been the coverage of Ukraine in the U.S. media, in the English media, and to my knowledge, in a lot of European media, is pretty unbelievably, I don't want to say one-sided because, again, there's no justification for what Russia is doing. But, I, I mean, I was I read, a, I read a newspaper this weekend, sort of cover to cover, and I felt like, did the Ukrainian Ministry of Information write this newspaper? <laughs> you know, a, a lot of the coverage feels more like Ukrainian propaganda. And I'm, I'm using the word propaganda in a fairly neutral way, but it felt more like Ukrainian war propaganda than like journalism. Um, and when people are exposed to that, they respond, right? A lot of people are not very critical news consumers in the U.S. and in Europe, as in as in Russia. Although, of course, the Russian media is vastly more mendacious than the American or British versions. But people people were primed by past events and past media coverage of Russia, and now they're being sort of whipped whipped into a very fervent state. Um, by the coverage of the conflict. And uh, another thing that people have commented on, the difference between the way that Ukrainian military resistance to this invasion is portrayed in a way that's absolutely different than military resistance or armed resistance in, say, Afghanistan, right? It's hard to imagine Afghans being, uh, people in Afghanistan being celebrated for frantically making Molotov cocktails and and throwing them at people as is happening in Ukraine now. And that that phenomenon was evident in Maidan as during Maidan as well, um, with the the violent elements of the protests being so much more acceptable than they would have been in other contexts. In say the West Bank. Yes. <laughs> Especially in the West Bank. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, speaking of the West Bank, Ukraine, ever since Maidan, has very explicitly identified with Israel and tried to make parallels between its situation and Israel's situation, which I've always found to be extremely bizarre because in that scenario, Russia and Palestine are equated, right? Or Russia and Palestinian people. It really doesn't hang together at all. But I've heard it over and over. And I've always wondered whether it has to do not so much with any similarity in the two situations, because I think that they are are, are so absolutely different that it's laughable to compare them, but with 
that it has to do with a kind of aspiration on Ukraine's part that Ukraine, Ukraine actually has historically been a very important recipient like Israel of U.S. aid. Right. And um, I've wondered if that comparison has to do with Ukraine hoping to achieve the same level of kind of favored status that Israel has had in American politics. There was an article recently in The New York Times on American vets going to Ukraine to volunteer to fight and how it was pretty blunt about this, the framing in the article, how many saw it as an opportunity really to redeem themselves from being invaders in Iraq and Afghanistan by this time being part of the noble resistance to an invasion. And there's like a lot there. Do you see this conflict as providing the same sort of psychic function to Americans more generally in the wake of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the long war on terror? Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually wondering, one of the reasons that I was very suspicious of the U.S. intelligence about the Russian invasion, and this is another thing that I agreed about with some Ukrainian friends, was that I was wondering if this, if, if what appeared to me at the time to be the U.S. enthusiasm for a conflict between Ukraine and Russia had to do with a desire to have the withdrawal from Afghanistan vindicated. And they were making explicit comparisons, right, um, between the fall of Kabul and the fall of Kiev that they were predicting. And then we kind of laughed because, of course, they didn't predict the fall of Kabul. And so we thought that the reverse was going to happen with Kiev, that Kiev would never fall because how could they invade? And they were just, that it was just sort of a mirror in this strange way for the experience in Afghanistan. And I sort of wondered whether, you know, military interests or military contractor interests were upset about sort of losing, losing Afghanistan and now wanted a new arena so I, I, I do think that there, there's some parallel there or some connection there. Yeah, and it, it seems to me that uh, maybe less at the military level, but certainly at the ideological level, if you think about the last decade and a half since 2008, it hasn't been a really smooth ride for mainstream Western liberalism, <laughs> to say the least. So I think that for them, this conflict also provides a certain kind of staging ground for the reaffirmation and uh, reinvigoration of some of their most cherished ideals, and particularly around this idea that what we are seeing now is not any kind of true ideological battle about real ideas and visions of the world, but simply that the 21st century is going to be a fight between good guys and bad guys, between democracies and dictatorships. And for that reason also, a lot of this geopolitical and strategic analysis was always making links between, right, standing firm on Ukraine is important in order to also deter China. So this was always cast, I think, in a much wider geopolitical framework. And after Biden's, you know, in many ways, admirable independence in deciding to actually go through with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, although he then I think really marred it with the decision to freeze all the Afghan reserves and 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 uh, help throw the country into a big truly monstrous and just has not received enough attention at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I mean, we we can get to that in a moment. Also, I guess when we talk about sanctions and, yeah. and freezing bank reserves. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So the the to me this linkage was was striking, but particularly I think also a certain 
a group of liberal commentators who felt that they, ever since, you know, the, the, uh, the particularly since Trump and Brexit had been very much on the back foot, had turned almost kind of uh, a bit melancholy and introspective. Now to them, this is again uh, a moment where you can bravely and, and, and without any uh, concern defend Western values. And particularly because there's a very receptive audience for it now and there's a good media operation around it. So I would say that this also has, uh, yeah, for the, the narrative that the, the international fault lines of the 21st century are going to be between democracies and dictatorships, right? Biden also had a summit of democracies rhetoric. Um, and, and, and I think it's really um, also fits into the kind of mood that was around uh, in, in many European capitals after he uh, came into office after Trump. Uh, and, and that's, I think, also why many Europeans have been quite happy to go along with a lot of these US policies in the last few weeks, that there's a real kind of convergence of uh, opportunity uh, to, to reinvigorate Western liberalism in a very broad sense. Nick, you, you've written about illiberal right-wing currents that have come to power in Eastern and Central Europe, particularly in Poland and Hungary. And in your view, the, the political ambitions of Orban or Poland's Law and Justice Party go a lot deeper than some conventional narratives would would have it. You, you write that anti-liberal nationalism in the region is more than an outburst of uncontrollable passions. You write, quote, Common to both is the belief that a historic task has befallen them and that the end of communism was only the beginning of the road to national liberation. The fact that these ideas were formed during the transition decade also suggests that illiberal democracy is a purposive project, something not just reactive, but with clear ideological goals of its own. These far-right illiberal ideals and this revived nationalism opposed to both the communist past and to the North Atlantic liberal order are popular not just in Poland and Hungary, but also in Russia and Ukraine. And so thinking back to Putin's speech in the lead up to the invasion, he railed against the Bolsheviks, the late Soviet elites, and only then the Americans for constraining Russia's Russia's national self-determination. And yet Polish and Hungarian nationalisms are, of course, not aligned with Moscow. Rather, they are firmly in a camp arrayed against Russia. What's similar and what's different about the nationalisms on all sides of this conflict in, in Eastern Europe? And what what was it about the socialist bloc or the transition from communism that seems to have made questions of borders and national identity and conflict so powerful, so pervasive in the region? Really profound question for sure that, that you just posed, which is which is great. Now so I would actually go back to the early 20th century and the interwar period and point out that in both uh, Poland and Hungary, there was an experience uh, that even went back before then, but but that really, I think, came to fruition uh, around the time of World War One and, and uh, the Versailles Treaty and the, the, the post-World War One order, that these countries could be made and remade, that their borders could change. So Poland was restored after not having actually been on, a ma- on the map of Europe as an independent state for almost a, a ha- more than 100 years. It was restored, and Hungary, conversely, actually lost a lot of the territories that they considered to be there. So in the interwar period, you could already see a certain kind of conservative, nationalist, Polish and Hungarian politics emerge. And that's never gone away. That's actually been there throughout the 20th century. It's just that the subsequent decades of of communist rule 
made a lot of people, I think, forget that it was there. And of course, the rhetoric of these state socialist regimes was also that they had eradicated the bourgeois, chauvinist, and in the case of Hungary particularly, overt fascist elements from their societies. Uh, so I think that led a lot of people to expect that in 1990, when the Soviet Union uh, ended, uh, this dissolved, sorry, when the Soviet Union dissolved and when the Eastern Bloc, the, the state socialist bloc in Eastern Europe ended, that then what was left was the main ideological stream in, in, in global politics, namely Western liberalism, and that it was basically through a process of elimination that we would arrive at this. That's also, in a sense, a bit, you know, the Fukuyama story. But probably if we take a more critical look, we, we, sh we should see that those right-wing and nationalist ways of thinking about the world never went away. They were an important locus of resistance against communism throughout a lot of the second half of the 20th century. And they also had more liberal sides. And what actually emerged in the 1990s and 2000s was a kind of contest between different visions of the nation in Eastern Europe. And they're what I think makes people like Orban and Kaczynski so interesting is that they see 1989 as a kind of halfway revolution, as a fake revolution. And they actually really overtly say that this was a kind of major whitewashing of communist elites, that what actually happened was a, a big turncoat process in which former communist elites, the nomenclatura, transformed themselves and kind of washed themselves in the bath of Western liberal reforms and came out as EU uh, ready to enter the EU liberals on the other side. And this is, I think, from that older kind of national a regenerationist way of looking at, at their national history, a very troubling thing in their eyes. And they've since, I think, very much focused on control, not only over the media, but particularly the judiciary in both countries, because they see the judiciary as a tool with which you can purge those sorts of unpatriotic foreign uh, elements. And that's also right. Law and justice, the Polish ruling party, its name needs to be taken really seriously. It thinks that it stands for a law that will renovate and, and, and purify the nation and, and finally complete this process that began in 1989, but that isn't finished. So the, the common denominator between communism and, and liberalism for them is that it's, it's ruled by a capital far away. Under communism, Eastern Europe was ruled from Moscow, and now under the EU, it's ruled from Brussels. So that's kind of the force field in which they're at play. And with Russia, I think it's it's slightly trickier because in Russia, of course, they were throughout the, the period of the Soviet Union in the position of the privileged uh, ethnicity in, a, in a, an imperial and a federal project. But one of the analyses that my colleague Christina Floria here at Cornell has been making recently and that I think is actually the best way of looking at this is that what happened in the early 1990s is that the Soviet Union dissolved, but this was not a process that ended in 1991. And in one way, you could see this conflict over Ukraine and especially the relation between Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, three countries all right, very much involved in this war, really directly Belarus as well, we shouldn't forget about them, as a very protracted consequence of an ongoing process of imperial collapse. And the idea that Western liberals like Fukuyama had that the Soviet Union ended in 1991 uh, glossed over the fact that the consequences of undoing such an imperial structure that's been around for 80 years 
actually take multiple decades. And so it's actually not that weird that now three decades after the formal end of the Cold War, we're still dealing with the consequences. But now it's a revanchist Russian nationalism that is trying to uh, yeah, lead another kind of project of regeneration. And uh, interestingly, that has uh, shrouded itself not in the robes of getting rid of communism, like Pol Polish and Hungarian nationalism, but getting rid of Nazism, because that is very important to the the kind of Russian and Soviet narrative of the Great Patriotic War. So in that aspect, they're very different. But in the sort of structural features, I think you can see some some similarities, but with the important difference that the Russian nationalism was the central piece in an imperial federal project of the Soviet Union. And and I think that this analysis that we're in a, this crisis is a result, this war is a result of a protracted process of imperial collapse that is still ongoing is, is a very important one. It's so fascinating. And it's strange to see this present conflict framed as all about Eastern Europe choosing European liberalism over Russian illiberalism, given that these Eastern European countries are building these so-called illiberal democracies and are constant opponents of European liberalism. Yeah, so that's, I think, also why that the term illiberalism, and in a way I kind of regret even having used it in, in my own writing, because it's basically a term that works in a purely negative way. It just means not liberalism, which actually means most of human politics before the 20th century, right? <laughs> so it's not terribly precise, which is uh, uh, probably a problem. But I think it's important now because it's clearly uh, the result also of a certain lack of ideological imagination on the part of Western liberals themselves, right? Their opponents can only be people defined as people who hate them or people who hate us as liberals. Uh, they cannot have these purposive, older, longer projects that have a pretty, you know, we, we may not agree with them and we may very rightly reject their premises and their projects, but they have very clear agendas that you can and should, I think, try and understand on their own terms. And they have much longer histories, sometimes in, in some cases, even histories that, that predate the advent of liberalism in Eastern Europe. So I always believe in, you know, uh, the sort of from the horse's mouth theory of approaching history and, and politics that you should you should actually listen to what people say about themselves. It's not all false consciousness. They, they are often remarkably frank about what they want and, and are going to do. But that also requires a little bit coming up with a vocabulary that's not as binary as liberalism and illiberalism, which just seems to me to be really, yeah, way too simplistic. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com slash donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com slash donate. You'll keep Jacobin going in tough times, and Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come.
let's turn to sanctions and the economic dimensions of the geopolitics. Nick, what are the sanctions that are currently in place? And specifically, how do the various particular sanctions rank in terms of the impact that that they're having or will have on the Russian economy? At the moment, there's a whole slew of sanctions that's come into place, but probably the best place to start is 2014. Again, Euromaidan and the Russian annexation of Crimea and the start of the war in Donbass. So at that time, the United States and the European Union began to impose sanctions on Russia. They started to restrict the access of the Russian government to international debt markets, and they began to put sanctions on the ability of the Russian oil and gas industry to get long-term capital from Western investors. So long-term joint ventures, they were curtailed. And they were basically quite gradual sanctions. There were a number of sanctions also uh, on individuals, on, on some oligarchs, on people related to the Russian military industrial complex. And then in, in years since, there have been a number of, of, of other ones on Russian arms exports and Russian mercenaries. But those are basically the sanctions. They were definitely a form of of economic uh, pressure being exerted on Russia. They had an effect on Russia's long-term growth rate, but they were always constructed with a sort of eye to making sure that the European-Russian economic relationship could still, in its essence, survive. It was a, a, a kind of compromise by the two sides of the Atlantic alliance between the United States and Europe. And they were also an attempt to try and, in the long run, lower the amount of capital and money that the Russians had at their disposal, particularly in the, in the oil and gas industry, and to try and kind of cap how far they could expand in that realm. So to that, in the last month now, a whole number of new sanctions have been added. And the most important ones are probably the fact that Russia has now, uh, a number of its large financial institutions have been cut from the SWIFT network, which is the messaging system that international banks use to send money across borders. That's a pretty significant step. The only time that that had happened in the past was against Iran, which uh, in 2011 was cut from the SWIFT network. And SWIFT is a private company. It's based in Belgium. And so the, the fact that the European and American governments decided to do this was a pretty significant step because it's it's basically meant to be a kind of neutral, apolitical, neoliberal institution that doesn't do politics, but they they very much um, used it as a, as for a, a mechanism for economic exclusion. And then the other really significant sanctions that we've seen are a ban on exporting high-tech components to Russia. That's going to really affect their ability to have advanced Western technology, particularly microchips and semiconductors, uh, not just for their military industry, but also for all sorts of other manufacturing industries that they have airplanes and, and uh, large vehicles, etc. And then there is probably, I think, one of the most significant set of sanctions, which is the freezing of the Russian central bank's foreign exchange reserves. So the, the foreign currencies that are located in the jurisdiction of the United States and European countries and also Japan. Uh, so it's the euro, the dollar and the yen uh, and also British pound deposits of the Central Bank of Russia. And then on top of that, there's a number of sanctions on individual oligarchs, uh, a number of measures uh, that have been taken against Putin, people around him. But I would say those are sort of the main uh, sanctions that are in place right now. 
I would add, I would add about the sanctions that the sanctions and also the decisions by individual companies not to do business with, with Russia for either practical or ideological reasons. One group of people that is, I think, a, a, a really unfortunate uh, kind of collateral damage in this process is the quite large number of Russians who are fleeing Russia right now. I've been working on a story about this. So I've been doing interviews all this week with people and they're being terribly affected. Um, they're sort of caught between two fires, as they say, because they are in imminent danger, Some, especially journalists. Who, and especially journalists who have broken the laws and sp- spoken about, you don't even have to speak against the war. You just have to mention the war um, to be at risk of a very long prison sentence at this point. So people are fleeing. They're kind of abandoning everything they have. Um, they don't have access to their money because there are tight restrictions on what you're allowed to take out of Russia. And of course, you know, you can't gather gather all your assets when you're leaving the next day in haste. But now a lot of them are finding themselves in Tbilisi, Yerevan, Istanbul, wherever else. And they can't even, they face a situation where they can't even, you know, pay for their hotel at a time when they don't know what's going to happen next because uh, Russian bank cards are ceasing to work uh, anywhere except in Russia because Visa and MasterCard will no longer service Russian Russian cards. So, yeah, there are already some some unfortunate victims, um, not only of, of Putin's laws, but also of, of these sanctions and this movement to kind of cancel, cancel all economic ties with Russia. Yeah. And the way that that's really worked and why those central bank sanctions are the most significant of the entire Western sanctions package, I think, is because it has an immediate effect on the stability of the ruble, the Russian currency. And one way to think of it is that what the West has done is effectively engineer a financial crisis of a kind that one would have seen in the 1990s in an, an Asian emerging market economy or in a developing country. Things that countries like Brazil or India or South Africa have gone through in recent years. That's the sort of thing that these measures are now putting Russia through because without these central bank reserves, the Russian central bank cannot defend the value of the ruble. So over the last week, it's fallen by more than 40%. And that immediately increases inflation. It makes things inside Russia much more expensive to import. And on top of that, like Sophie was saying, there's been a huge private sector boycott. Some people call this self-sanctioning because it's basically an overreaction by the global business sector to the measures announced by the government. And it's important to really emphasize this because it's something that was not probably foreseen. uh, The degree to which it's happened was probably not foreseen by the designers of these sanctions, but it's taken place and it's really added to the effect of the sanctions precisely because they were taken so quickly and so many of them were piled on within the space of a few days, there was a kind of panic reaction by the global business sector. And now you've seen over the last week an enormous number of very important Western companies in all sorts of tech uh, sectors, car manufacturing, tech, uh, McDonald's, right, even uh, now closing its famous restaurant in, in central Moscow that was in 1990, one of the first Western fast food restaurants to open in the Soviet Union. And all of these, the, the, the presence, the corporate presence of Western investment in Russia is now rapidly being drained from the country. 
And that's in some sense an overreaction to these sanctions because not all the sanctions actually directly impede those businesses from doing business. But for reputational reasons, they don't want to be seen as being present in a country that's committing such a heinous act and, and war of aggression against Ukraine. But also, I think, out of fear that if the West took these sanctions so quickly, there are probably going to be more sanctions coming down the pipeline. The, these businesses are all withdrawing. They're fearful of future sanctions and they're worried about their reputation. But so you have the combined effect of a state-coordinated, international state-driven sanctions campaign and a private sector boycott or self-sanctioning tendency coming together, making it a uniquely harsh squeeze on, on the Russian economy and the Russian population. In terms of the politics of it all, how how and why did these sanctions end up being so much stronger than almost anyone, maybe anyone, had imagined just days before they were put in place? Was it just the tenacity of the Ukrainian resistance that kept it a, and continues to keep it a live issue? Yeah, so some of the reporting that I've read about this suggests that Zelensky himself did play a pretty important role in directly appealing to particularly European leaders because... I think the important thing to bring across right is that the United States always has way fewer qualms about imposing sanctions because it suffers as a very large and uh, relatively self-contained economy in many respects. It suffers much less blowback from sanctions than most European and Asian economies. So it was always the Europeans who were going to have to be convinced. But apparently Zelensky himself was put on a video call to European leaders and delivered a really impassioned plea, which convinced many of them that they should go much further than they had been prepared to go. The other thing I think was also a, a panic reaction and, and, and fear, because many people were so taken aback by the Russian invasion still, that they th felt something truly powerful was needed uh, to respond uh, uh, to, to, to this Russian act. And that, I think, is one of the uh, reasons. And then the unintended effect, or, or only partially intended effect, the fear of the leaders in European countries about the Russian invasion led them to impose a very severe sanctions regime. And the speed with which that happened then spread this fear to the international business world. And, and so this snowballing of uh, taking actions that are far more severe than had been intended, I think, uh, spread also from the public to the private sector. I would say also, I would add that I think the process was also very much accelerated by the kind of synergy of copious, extremely sympathetic media coverage and intense enthusiasm for the cause on social media. I don't think that the sanctions would have advanced so quickly if we didn't have social media in particular. Um, I think that they, they got a really astonishing amount of momentum thanks to that phenomenon, that kind of movement, that enthusiasm. Are these sorts of sanctions unprecedented? And how do they compare to those applied by the U.S. in the past and, and present in Afghanistan, Iran, Venezuela? The way to think about how unprecedented they are, I think, is as a combination of three dimensions, probably. You can think of it in terms of speed, which, like we just discussed, is an important factor. How quickly you ratchet up the pressure you go from from zero, or in this case, from probably two or three out of 10 to something like seven or eight out of 10, because I think that that's where we are now. And that's one dimension. The other one is how many countries are involved in actually imposing the sanctions. And there it's significant that those that central bank freeze includes, for example, the Japanese, who are, have an important reserve currency, but also the ban on technology exports, the ban on exporting 
semiconductors and microchips and that sort of advanced technology includes in a whole number of Asian countries. So it's not just a North Atlantic group. There are some important Asian manufacturers involved. And that too, the, 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 the width of the sanctions imposing coalition is pretty unprecedented. And the third one is probably the, just the fact that Russia is a very large economy. It has never really happened that an economy that was part of the 20 largest ones, the, the G20, was put under these sorts of sanctions and particularly had these central bank assets frozen. So that combination of speed, of breadth of the sanctions imposing coalition and of the size of the target, how big the Russian economy is, it's the 11th largest in the world. Uh, that I think makes them pretty unprecedented. And that's one of the things that we're seeing now that I think the speed with which these decisions were taken meant that there was not enough time in which to reflect on what the effects were going to be. So what you're already starting to observe is that ever since a week and a half ago, the weekend when the additional sanctions on the SWIFT network and central bank were rolled out, a very big fear reaction has been going not only through the corporate sector, but also through all sorts of markets related to trade and transactions in money and commodities that have something to do with Russia and Ukraine. And there was already some spike in prices, for example, as a result of the invasion, but really the takeoff in prices in crucial commodities and, and food also like wheat and corn, but oil, natural gas, nickel, copper, uh, all sorts of other commodities, that's really taken off dramatically since these sanctions were expanded. And I think there also we really should uh, make a distinction between the American sanctions on Iran, Venezuela, Cuba. Those were very painful and brutal sanctions and are still very painful and brutal to those populations. But part of what makes them also uh, so crushing is that these economies can be isolated with relatively little damage to the rest of the world economy. And Russia shows that that is uh, very different when you are the 11th largest country, uh, economy in the world. So at the moment, I think we're actually starting to see the beginnings of a commodity price surge that is really uh, pretty massive. Certainly it seems to be the biggest on record in the last 50 or so years. And there's a very high chance if you add this up with other things going on in the world economy right now that we could be going into a pretty severe global recession in the next few months and that we will end this year in recession, particularly because the Russians, who were also taken aback by the speed and the severity of these sanctions, yesterday announced that they are going to announce lists with commodities that they are going to export still and ones that they are not going to export. So they're starting to retaliate now and using the fact that they're a major commodity exporter as a weapon against the, the sanctioning countries. So they're again doing it, I think, uh, with an eye to continuing exports to countries that aren't using sanctions against them, but they're starting to flex their own economic power. And that's simply a capacity that Iran and Venezuela don't have. They cannot retaliate as easily. They usually try and do it through asymmetric ways, cyber attacks or supporting uh, armed groups in the case of Iran in, 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 in the Middle East. But Russia really has a number of direct economic levers that it can use for retaliations that we're now starting to see are, are pretty significant. So I'm very concerned about the global economic stability implications of these sanctions because it's also particularly countries in the global south that are going to be very heavily hit by this surge in the price of commodities. To what degree can oil and gas exports make up for the hit that Russia is taking? 
with these sanctions by continuing to provide Russia with hard currency to stash in its foreign exchange reserves? Do the sanctions make these euros and dollars that Russia is earning from energy exports worthless? No, actually, the at the moment, Russia can still earn quite a bit of foreign exchange. And the real irony is that by blocking a lot of the supply of commodities from world markets and causing private businesses to cease to want to do business with Russia, we're actually creating extra shortages uh, unintentionally on world markets. And that drives up the price of the commodities that are still there to be sold. So the really paradoxical and even kind of perverse thing is that Russia is now earning more money selling gas to the European Union. It's earning more money this week, much more actually, about 700 million euros uh, compared to how much it was earning two weeks ago, only about 250 million euros. And as long as that is not cut off, and it's quite difficult to do that very rapidly in the short run, they're going to continue to earn money. So the EU also is now very much looking forward to reducing its dependence on Russian oil and gas by the end of this year. But you can't do this overnight. It's not going to be a question of days or weeks. It's really going to be a question of many months and actually probably years to to, to get that going. So I think all of this, to my mind, also points really in the uh, direction of the incredible missed opportunity that that we've had the last few years of using pretty uh, decent conditions to borrow money to invest massively in renewable energy that we haven't used, particularly in Europe, and that we're still in this conflict where hydrocarbon and petrostates are basically fighting each other and and, and the consequences of their economic pressure and economic war and, and military wars against each other are now reinforcing the desire to want to uh, unlock more oil supplies. So the other thing that's just really striking and almost funny in a way is to see that the Biden administration is now reaching out to both Iran and Venezuela to try and cut temporary deals so that they will lift some sanctions against those countries so that Iran and Venezuela can put more oil onto world markets in order to offset the reduced supply from Russia (laughs) due to the sanctions. So it's a really kind of, you know, creating a problem in one way in order to then uh, you know, uh, uh, solve it somewhere else. Uh, dynamic yeah, fo- fossil fuel whack a mole. Yeah, I said recently. Yeah, so so that's kind of the the dynamic at the moment. Uh, I would say. How are these sanctions and then also like sanctions in general supposed to work? Meaning, what do what do the governments that apply them hope to accomplish? And then, how are they in reality working? So that's one of the big questions right now because. There are formal written aims that European and American leaders have stated, which have to do with an end to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, withdrawal of all troops and equipment from the territory of Ukraine, and respect for Ukrainian independence and sovereignty. Now, that all sounds pretty obvious on paper, although when you get into the technical details, right, Russia has technically been committing aggression against Ukraine by annexing the Crimea and fomenting the separatism in Donbass for eight years. So does withdrawal from Ukraine also mean that Russia is going to have to depart from those regions? If so, it's going to make it much more difficult to envision that they're actually going to do what's needed to lift the sanctions. But that's one thing. I think actually what you are starting to see is that there is a a lack of willingness at this point to formulate clear goals for what these sanctions are meant to do partially because they just play very well with Western audiences. They are clear signs that the West is taking a very firm stand 
not just supporting the Ukrainians, but particularly punishing Putin and punishing the Russians uh, and, and who are in some cases deemed uh, to not have resisted Putin adequately. And you can hear all sorts of theories here. And I think there isn't one coherent one, actually. It, these sanctions also allow people to project their own pet theories of political change onto government policy. So there are definitely people who hope that these sanctions are going to bring down Putin, that they're going to cause direct regime change. The historical record of sanctions doing that is extremely, uh, you know, un uninspiring and actually suggests that that's almost impossible to do with sanctions. There's really vanishingly few cases of that ever working. And particularly, you know, in recent decades, uh, Iran, Iraq, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea all show that that's just basically, particularly if you then think that Russia is much bigger and, and more powerful than, than most of those states, it's going to be very difficult to do that. The more limited aim of just having a withdrawal, that I think is potentially feasible. But again, it needs to be very much made clear. What does Russia need to do in order to get some of these sanctions lifted then? And what would constitute a withdrawal? Would a ceasefire be enough and a partial withdrawal? Or... What's the actual specific nature of those demands? And then I think there's also people, and this is the most cynical, but also kind of bleak vision of what these sanctions are meant to do, which is that they actually don't expect that the Russians are going to respond. The sanctions are not going to cause change, but they're simply meant as a weapon with which to weaken Russia as a great power and to limit Russia's ability to do harm. And there's not really any realistic expectation that they're going to change things. So I would say those are the kind of three main theories. And at the moment, most leaders will still, I think, say in Europe particularly that they are pursuing an end to the conflict. But I think that in the United States particularly, although also in Europe, you're starting to see more and more people embracing the regime change and the long-run damage schools of, of, of how sanctions are supposed to work. There's a pervasive sense, I think, that sanctions are this risk-free or at least low-risk way to deal with adversaries and enemies, and not to open up the Pandora's box of your entire recently published book, but how did we come to think of sanctions as a nonviolent alternative to war rather than as economic warfare? Part of it also has to do, I think, with the fact that we had in the 20th century a number of experiences that have become, in a way, the epitome of human violence things like Auschwitz and Hiroshima and, and visions of total war, the Eastern Front, Barbarossa, uh, Vietnam, uh, right, aerial bombardment, napalm, chemical weapons, uh, the Gulf Wars, these sorts of horrific conflicts, Somalia and the kind of the genocides in, in the Balkans in the 1990s. Those, I think, for most people are the meaning of what war is about. And sanctions, by comparison, simply don't seem to register uh, at, on that spectrum with the same degree of intensity. So it's partially actually the, the, the incredibly horrific nature of warfare in the last 100 years, particularly, that's made it easier for sanctions to pass themselves off as such, despite the fact that they originate in the practice of economic blockade during wartime. But another thing right now, I think, is that you start to see that particularly in the uh, current moment, there's a widespread reluctance by people to uh, put actual Western troops uh, into faraway places. The interventionist, the highly interventionist phase of the war on terror has now been replaced by a much sleeker, low-cost drones, special forces, intelligence, and kind of outsourcing it to proxies phase of the war on terror. 
And sanctions, too, fit into that paradigm of using measures that have a relatively lower visibility to publics in the West, but that can still project force in, in a powerful way. So between those two things, kind of the, our, our, our memories and our public culture of what real war is and the way in which leaders by and large in Western democracies have come to see actual direct military intervention as politically very costly. I think those together explain quite a large part of why we see sanctions the way that we do. And then there's another final uh, factor, which is probably one that the West has tremendous economic power that it can use. So when you have this power, it's very tempting not to try and exploit it, particularly the US privilege as the issuer of, of the dollar. And that makes it especially difficult to think of, you know, a source of great wealth and prosperity to the United States. How could that be uh, something that could, that could be used as a, as a weapon against other countries? I think these are sorts of things that, that go very much into the domestic political perception of sanctions, but that's very much where our, our views of war and peace, I think, originate. Could these sanctions in the way that they reveal this incredible power that dollar hegemony accords to the U.S., could that incentivize countries to move away to break from the dollar system now that the power of the dollar system is being exploited to the hilt? Because you could see why it might, obviously. But on the other hand, the uncertainty is in the short term actually setting people to buy up dollars. And what's more, there's a lot of reasons that China, the one country that could hypothetically lead a parallel system not denominated in dollars, there are a lot of reasons why they would not want to or could not do so. Yeah, so... I think that the expectation that people are going to look for alternatives to the dollars has been around for a while. And, and, and definitely the reasons why you would want to break from it are clear, but there aren't really that many feasible alternatives. People talk about Bitcoin as, as potentially fulfilling that function, but ultimately there's also even not really enough Bitcoin for large numbers of sovereign states to put their wealth in. Uh, in in a, in a feasible long run way, and it's a very volatile asset, so it's also not a stable source of wealth. Yeah, just on Bitcoin, I would add that it's interesting because what's happening in Russia now for people who are trying to leave, or I think for some people who are not able to leave, um, there's kind of a rush, a Russian rush on on Bitcoin. People are frantically trying to get crypto um, because if they want to leave the country, that's going to be kind of the only thing that they have available to them, which is interesting. Yeah, and, and this worry also partially by Western policymakers that they are at some point going to lose this privilege, I think is very understandable. Uh, but like you said, Dan, you know, China isn't actually in a position to offer the kind of deep and liquid financial assets that could make it this, this, this uh, central hub of an alternate system yet. I do think that there's a bunch of second best kind of unfulfilling improvised solutions that are emerging. Crypto is maybe one of them, but definitely a return to gold in some to some degree. Again, not to there's never there's really not going to be a return to any gold standard, but gold is now one of the large few remaining sources of reserves that the Russian Central Bank has. They have more than 130 billion of it. And Venezuela has actually shown in the last few years that Although gold is difficult to sell, it's also not very liquid. You can ship and transport small amounts of it in a slightly more gangster-like fashion uh, and put it on planes and put it on ships in order to do emergency purchases. So 
it's not a sustainable way to run an economy, but you could kind of make it through a siege situation by really prioritizing the things that you need. And then I think it will be interesting to see how this Russian commodity embargo on, on the exports of commodities is going to play out. Because, of course, one other alternative to not having reserves is just direct barter. And if you do not have any kind of medium of exchange that is a monetary asset or a financial instrument, you can just resort to trying to actually get the things that you want ultimately, whether that's military equipment or technology or uh, some other thing, food, uh, vital resources, and try and figure out if you have other vital and, and interesting things that you could barter. That's an incredibly you know primitive, in a sense, way of going about it. But in this sort of situation right now where you're starting to see global commodity markets being more and more bifurcated between parts of supply that are under sanctions and parts that are not, I think that's also a very real possibility. So an alternative to the dollar, I don't think is going to uh, emerge very quickly, but there are going to be a whole number of smaller uh, ways that you are starting to see, I think, uh, opponents of the dollar-based system or countries that are fearful of being on the wrong side of it, uh, things that they're going to look for to try and, and evade some of these sanctions for sure. Well, Sophie Pinkham and Nick Mulder, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much. Great conversation. Sophie Pinkham is the author of Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine. She has written about Russian and Ukrainian culture and politics for the New York Review of Books, The New Republic, The New Left Review, and many other publications. Nick Mulder is professor of modern European history at Cornell University. He writes about international politics and economics for a variety of magazines and newspapers, and is the author of the new book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, if the emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Fia Riofrancos. A very big thanks to Ben Maybe for helping me prep for this interview. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also, please take a quick moment to rate and review us. Those reviews and ratings help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends to listen to the podcast, why you like the podcast, why they will like the podcast, and thus should listen to it please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Hold up. 